Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, hello everybody. I am so happy today because I have one of my favorite doctors on the show again, Dr. Samantha Holden. Thank you for being on the show again with me. My pleasure. You know, it's been a couple of years and I can't believe how time flies. (laughs) I know. So, Samantha, since you were last on the show, you you have changed your role, and you are now the medical director of the Memories Disorders Clinic at University of Colorado. I am, yes. A bit um, of an unexpected transition um, with Dr. Jonathan Woodcock. That by retiring, um, I was asked to step into the role, which I was happy to do, and I'm really excited about some of the opportunities to expand our clinic offerings and to bring in some new clinicians and other resources, but maybe a little earlier than expected, but happy to get started. (laughs) Well, and you also (laughs) moved your offices from the University of Colorado Mm -hmm. Hospital Anschutz location over to, mm-hmm. oh, it has a new name. It's no longer Stapleton. Central Park. Central yes. Park Central area. Park. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you do have some new doctors in your clinic. You want to tell yes. me about so, those? Um, yeah, we're really excited um, to have welcomed uh, Dr. Jessica Solomon Sanders, who just joined us in September, and she is one of the few adult developmental disability experts in the country wow. um, with the expertise in neurological conditions that we generally think of in childhood, but children grow up into adults um, and still have those <laughs> conditions okay. um, and how they affect cognition and behavior. So she is uh, dual appointed both at Children's and at University and has a half-day clinic now with us, uh, specializing in people with Down syndrome, with other intellectual disabilities, with autism spectrum disorders. Um, And we'll start with uh, some of our research also looking into the connection with Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease. So we're really excited to have her. And then in um, August of next uh, year 2021, we'll be welcoming a Dr. Delia Bakeman, um, who is dual trained in both neurology and psychiatry. And she's going to be in clinic uh, quite a bit uh, with us, seeing a lot of patients. And we can't wait for her to join us. <laughs> oh, I'll bet. Yeah. And, you know, just uh, talking about her, mm-hmm. I know, you know, oftentimes we see people, especially with Lewy body dementia, that really mm-hmm. present with some odd behaviors that um, Mm -hmm. we consider troubling on a lot of levels. And I think her expertise, you know, in helping in these areas might help explain a lot of some of the symptoms that you see, right? Absolutely. Yes. You know, the the brain is the mind and the mind is the brain and separating it out into what is neurology and what is psychiatry can add to the confusion. Um, So (laughs) having somebody that can get into those two specialties and and really understand both the brain and behavior at that level, we are so, so thrilled to have joined us. So Um, I think it'll go a long way. 
better understanding these conditions and better treating them. That's fantastic. And so you also work with Dr. Peter Pressman and Christopher Philly. And can you explain their expertise? (laughs) Yes. So uh, Dr. Peter Pressman is a specialist in frontotemporal dementias, um, which includes the best-known behavioral variant with personality and behavior changes, um, but also the primary progressive aphasias, where there's more language impairment. Dr. Christopher Philly, who's our section chief um, and the founder of the behavior section here in Colorado, is a white matter disease expert. So the connections, the uh, wires between the brain cells. And then there's also Dr. Bryce McConnell, um, who is uh, an MD-PhD doctor and has particular interest and expertise in sleep and the relationship between sleep and thinking and memory. You know, I think that's Awesome, and I'll tell you why. It's been—it's really great that since we opened the uh, Rocky Mountain Alzheimer's Center for Dementia, <laughs> which I think is what it changed yeah. to about a year ago. It really <laughs> encompasses—it really encompasses the whole scenario, all of the different neurological mm-hmm. disorders, and it's just amazing mm-hmm. to have all of you there in one central office where somebody can come in, yeah. you can confer, and say this isn't this particular type of <laughs> dementia, this is this type, and you can go to this doctor and <laughs> and have a better diagnosis, which is amazing. Yeah, I think we're really lucky. We're one of the, the biggest groups of, of behavioral neurologists in the country. There's, there's only about 400 of us in the country total that are board certified in, in behavioral neurology, this subspecialty of neurology. And we have quite a few here focused in Colorado. So I, I think we're lucky to have such a, a good group and different expertise and, and collaboration. Um, I also didn't mention another doctor, um, Dr. Zachary Mackey, um, who just finished his training uh, with us, who is doing additional training in neuropalliative care right now. So he's going to be one of our dementia specialists with additional training in neuropalliative care, somewhat stepping into the role vacated by Dr. Benzi Kluger, who um, left us for uh, the University of Rochester last year. So we're very happy to have Dr. Mackey join us as well. Right. And I think it would be worth talking about the fact that, you know, there is no cure for any of these various dementias. But why is it important? Can you just explain for a minute why it's important to be able to recognize all these different areas, how sleep can affect a certain neurological Mm -hmm. disorder or, you know, why it's important to know the difference between Lewy body and Alzheimer's and frontal temporal? Absolutely. So, you know, we certainly come up against a lot of pessimism, I would say. You know, if you can't fix this for me, why should I bother Mm -hmm. um, coming in? And if we are going to come up with better treatments and cures, we need to know what we're dealing with. Um, all, all, All dementia is not Alzheimer's. And all Alzheimer's is not dementia. Um, so really characterizing as thoroughly as possible all of these different conditions, how they affect people differently, how can we best diagnose them while people are alive. Right now, definitive diagnosis is by autopsy, which is unacceptable you know, for right. people um, living with these things. So if we're going to come up with better diagnoses, and then better treatments, we need to fully understand these conditions and their full spectrum 
as early as possible and then understanding the whole disease course. Um, and there's things that we can do. Even if we can't cure these conditions, we can absolutely manage them, manage symptoms, help people plan for the future, make sure that we are not missing things that could be related to other conditions, right. um, making sure that if there's other contributing medical factors that could be worsening the neurological symptoms, that we address that. Um, so I really see our role, even if it's not curative, as really a partnership and, and walking this disease course along with people. And something I always tell my uh, patients in clinic is, you know, you live your life, you focus on your joys, those things that are important to you, your values. Let me worry about your brain and you <laughs> worry about your life and your loved one. And that's my job. Leave that with me. Let me take that burden. Um, and that kind of partnership from diagnosis through end of life is really such um, a, a unique gift that we have, you know, as a clinician, and then being able to share that with our families and really getting to know people over time. That's so powerful. And, you know, I have spoken also with Dr. Christina Vaughn and Dr. Mm -hmm. Pellick and having, um, some of their patients, you know, even with PCA, posterior cortical atrophy with Dr. Pellick, was something I had never even heard of. And she explained to me that that was a syndrome of Alzheimer's. And uh -huh. I, it just blows my mind <laughs> that, as know. We, you know, every time we turn a corner, we're trying to learn about some other neurological disease or disorder uh -huh. and trying to put some rhyme or reason to it. And I, you know, I realized mm -hmm. recently, I, I think this is exciting to tell you, the last time I had you on my show, I was super excited that I had listeners in 26 states and 22 countries. And now, uh, it is now all 50 states and 54 countries. <laughs> And oh, my goodness. Isn't that something? And, and, and through uh, Dr. Pellick, she has patients literally all over the world. And mm -hmm. so when I have mm -hmm. my Alzheimer's classes and, and she sends her PCA people to the Alzheimer's classes mm -hmm. that I do for you and your team, uh, yeah. I have people literally from New Zealand, Jerusalem. Oh it, it blows me away uh, how far reaching this is. So it's not just a Denver mm -hmm. audience anymore, a Colorado audience. Yeah. We're literally reaching people everywhere. And I thought, well, this is a great time to have you back. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so speaking <laughs> of that, I, I don't know if I told my mm -hmm. listeners, but uh, it's almost been a year ago now. I had just provided a class for people with Parkinson's disease uh, mm -hmm. for the University of Colorado Hospital. And I called you a little bit distraught after that class and said there were a couple of people <laughs> that came to the class that had a need for information about Alzheimer's. But the symptoms for people with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are very different. And I asked you if I could actually work with your patients and your folks. And thank you so mm -hmm. much for saying yes, because oh. Alzheimer's is really oh my in my goodness. wheelhouse. <laughs> Um, but we started the classes last December, and they they have literally grown from six in the very first class to 14 in the second to now I have over 50 every month. 
over Wonderful. 50. It's been amazing. The people that jump yeah. on and, uh, you know, all the, the ways that I've been able to try to give them information so that they could live well with these diseases and resilient Mm-hmm. And one of the things that mm-hmm. I added was, um, and I hope it's been helpful to you. I've never really had a chance to ask, but when I provide yeah. in-home assessments, I send you a copy of the assessment yeah. that I've done on your patients. And I do this for all the docs that send me, uh, Christina and Dr. Pelleg mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And I want to know, does that help? Does it help you to see inside the home? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, it's a very uh, unique view that we usually do not get. Um, you know, we get this very small slice of somebody's life in the artificial environment of our clinic, which is it can be anxiety-provoking. Right. Um, and now we have you know, masks, it too, and, you know, that uh, additional layer of separation. So having that more personal um, and meaningful glimpse into really what day-to-day life is like for people. Because I often hear, you know, in the clinic um, that people somewhat um, show off for us, maybe, that they're they're really on, they're trying hard, right. um, and maybe we're not <laughs> full. Um, picture of what they're really like. Um, it happens most frequently when I ask people to walk for me, especially my patients with Parkinson's, and and they try so hard and they're swinging their arms and and big steps, and the partner leans over and says, "That is not how they walk." Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I deal. You know, when we're trying to figure out, you know, what makes this person tick, you know, right? Because to know somebody's brain, I need to know them. They are their their brain. Their brain is them. So trying to work out what is this person about, what is going on in here, where did they come from, what has changed, where are they now, ideally I would be like an anthropologist, right? I would observe right. them. I would make field notes. I would see what they're doing day to day, which is what you do. Right. right. <laughs> um, so it's this natural extension there where, yes, we can do the more kind of formal rigid, um, you know, uh, interviews and cognitive testing and neurological exams, but that additional piece of of what somebody's like in their own environment, you know, with their own setup, without the stress of being in the clinic is really invaluable for us. Oh, I'm so glad because I really absolutely come at it 100% just from a caregiver's standpoint, but that person as well, the person with the diagnosis. So when I go into the home, Mm -hmm. I'm asking them, you know, tell me how this feels to you. I'm very straightforward with them. Um, What do you need? And, you know, if I can kind of tell what stage of Alzheimer's they're in or what have you, I will tell them, you know, I see you in this area and this is what you're going to see in upcoming weeks and this is how you can work with it and and so on and so forth. And so I am not coming from it from a clinical standpoint at all. I'm looking at what rugs do they need to pick Mm -hmm. up or, you know, the the house needs to be decluttered or the Mm -hmm. dynamic in the family uh, need to change a little bit here. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's great to actually talk to you about that. And on the other hand, you yeah. know, I, I, I am not trying to toot my own horn. I just really want to know, do you get any <laughs> feedback from the families on the classes? Are they, are they yeah. helpful yeah. to them? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, going back to that piece of just very practical, like, what can I be doing? Because I think there's, there's a lot of educational opportunities. There's a lot of support groups, which, you know, may be good for venting or commiserating. 
um, or just learning. But but in terms of I need practical steps to make things easier for right. both of us, both for the care partner and for the person living with a cognitive impairment. That's what I think is is a bit of a, a gap in the field right now, where right. you know we have these handouts or, or you know the kind of common techniques, but the common techniques don't work for everybody. Um, right. So really have that toolkit right where you can fill up your toolkit with possible interventions and being aware of if this were to happen, I could try this. Right. Um, and having a few rounds that are very um, uh, practical and implementable is is such a huge need, I think. Um, so I think that's what I've heard the most is that I've, I've read so many books, I've read websites, I've gone to support groups, but I always walk away feeling like I don't have any good takeaways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what these classes are, are filling the need for, where it's like, I need something to do in those difficult situations. Right, right. As well as preparing for the, like, if somebody's not at that stage yet where they need a direct intervention, but how do we set up our lives, set up our relationships so that we ease these transitions in a proactive way instead of waiting for things to go wrong? I'm so glad because every month, just so my uh, listeners know, every other month I have a what I call a beginner's class. And it's not like the beginner class I taught at the Alzheimer's Association. It's deeper than that. I talk about the lobes of the brain and their function and what might possibly be impaired, you know, in the future when they have one of these neurological diseases. And it could run the whole gamut, just how the brain actually works and, and its role. But on the off months for the people who are not new, I... I either talk about managing their emotions or what they'll see from a financial standpoint or legal standpoint or going through the activities of daily living and actually breaking down how you need to cue a person through these through these various uh, daily routines and so on and so forth. And uh, I'm just really tickled that that I get so many people mm-hmm. from your office and, and they come in and they yeah. really get off and say, gosh, that was uplifting. <laughs> what I don't yeah. want is for them to walk away going, oh, no, this well, is what's okay. coming up. Yeah. And I do ask, mm-hmm. I do spend about a half an hour letting them, well, actually, I, I talk through the through what I'm trying to teach them, but then I ask them all to tell me what they're dealing with in their home. And it gives them a a much better chance to have their questions answered and so on and so forth, which is awesome. So thank Mm. you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me work with your patients. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of curious. How has this changed for you, you know, caring for families through COVID-19 and having, like, I've taken my classes to Zoom. You're having telemedicine now. How's that changing for you and your docs? Yeah, it's certainly been uh, a roller coaster. Um, so in mid-March, uh, we just completely shut down the clinic um, with our older patient population. Um, almost everybody we see in our clinic is over 60 and, and therefore at a higher risk of severe COVID-19 disease. Right. So we just made the decision to shut the clinic down completely. We converted very quickly to telemedicine. Um, thankfully, we already had the infrastructure at UC Health where we had the technology, but uh, we weren't using it as much prior to the pandemic because Medicare was not reimbursing for telemedicine. So that really restricted us because about 70% of our patients are Medicare recipients. 
So uh, thankfully, with the pandemic, they lifted those restrictions. Medicare has been reimbursing for that type of care. And we were telemedicine only from mid-March through the end of June. Um, so we were all seeing patients from home. We were doing cognitive assessments virtually. We got creative with um, sharing our screens and showing, you know, test uh, prompts and uh, examining people. Uh, we got to see uh, a little glimpse, uh, you know, going back to seeing people in their own home environment, um, seeing their what was behind them in the room, wherever right. their webcam was. Uh, kind of how the house was set up, if it looked cluttered or there were any fall uh, risks uh, behind them. Um, and then also just kind of seeing more personal touches, like, oh, tell me about that, you know, piece of art back there. Or uh, what are what are those things? You know, it was, it was very frequently like, what is that behind you? And just to kind of open people up a little bit um, and learn more about it. Um, there was a lot of memorabilia and kind of like interesting uh, little tchotchkes in the background frequently. Right. So right. that was nice. And then also, um, in addition, with our telehealth um, platform, we can have up to five different computers like in the same room, the same virtual room. So I had um, patients, children, right, you know, children that live on the East Coast. Uh, a sister that lived in Hawaii, um, you know, uh, people could join into the visit and hear us and ask us questions, see what we were seeing with the exams, um, and really uh, bring it closer together, even with us being physically distanced. So I think there were a lot of benefits to opening the telemedicine, and we certainly were learning as we went. Um, we reopened the clinic the end of June, and we're probably back to about 75% in person. We still have uh, telehealth availability, and we offer it if people do not feel comfortable coming into the clinic. And we are ready to convert back um, fully to telemedicine if the numbers continue to increase over the next few months. It's just been a learning curve for everyone, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. It really has. You know, recently, I I haven't shared this with you, but I received a call from the Washington Post asking Mm. why I thought that people with uh, Alzheimer's and various dementias related, Parkinson's disease, Lewy body, Mm. are having a harder time. caregivers and people, their their summation was that people with uh, Alzheimer's and, and Lewy body especially uh, were dying at higher mm-hmm. rates right now yeah. than yeah. anyone else. And my mm-hmm. take on that was grief. I think mm-hmm. it's grief. And I would be interested to hear what you think about that. I'm just, you know, I hadn't told you prior. I was going to ask you this question, yeah. but I, <laughs> but, but I think that I think that we're grieving. I think we're grieving as a community, yeah. and I feel like mm-hmm. our friends with diagnosis feed off of our emotions, and the emotions yeah. around the country have been heightened at an anxiety level mm-hmm. I've never seen before. In communities, they can't communicate with their family members. They're doing it through glass Mm -hmm. windows. Um, It wasn't until Mm -hmm. recently that they could even come in and talk to them, and they had to keep their mask on. And if the person with diagnosis even started to mess with their mask, it's over. 
they have to leave and stop the meeting. Um, I think the caregivers were feeling frustrated because they couldn't get any time Mm -hmm. alone and could not attend, Mm -hmm. you know, like uh, daycares and things like that to get some respite. What's your take on this? Yeah, yeah, and I actually just did an interview with the Denver Post because they um, had a, a article last week that there were 26% uh, more deaths from Alzheimer's, you know, since the, the start of the pandemic, which is huge numbers. Right. And I think it's probably twofold. Um, one, are people with Alzheimer's more susceptible to COVID-related deaths, period? Um, you know, and even for those who didn't have respiratory symptoms or weren't tested, you know, are people contracting COVID because it's more difficult for them to keep their masks on, for them to wash hands, to remember to be physically distanced? So I think that remains an open question, just the risk as well as does having a neurodegenerative condition make you more susceptible over and above just older age? Because neurodegenerative conditions are more common the older we are, but is there more risk from having a neurological condition? Which I think remains to be seen. Um, You know, the biggest risk factors do seem to be more respiratory, pre-existing conditions, uh, and obesity. Um, but could neurological conditions um, also increase that risk? Right. You know. And the, then, oh, go ahead. You know, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, that's all right. Go um, ahead. And then, you know, the, so the two piece. So one, you know, the risk and the actual infection, you know, COVID-related increased deaths, even if pre-existing Alzheimer's or other dementia was also present. But then I think the other big piece, and probably the the more significant contribution, is that stress-related effect of, you know, the past seven months of, of just utter turmoil and anxiety and overwhelm and not knowing what to, what's coming next, like what else could possibly go wrong. Right. And for those of us with fully intact, you know, nervous systems, we're all feeling it. You know, ev- nobody's sleeping. Everybody has headaches. You know, there's joint pain. Like everybody is physically feeling these effects. So for somebody with an already compromised nervous system, there's less reserve, less ability to compensate for those stressors. And that's why we see people with cognitive impairment become more symptomatic, you know, even delirious if they get sick, if they're hospitalized, if they travel, because there's less of that backup to call upon in stressful situations. And now we have the mother of all stressful situations adding on top of these people's already compromised brains. And I think that is accelerating the disease process. I agree. And I worry more about my Parkinson's friends in that in that realm yeah. in what you were saying, because I think they are more adversely affected when anxiety mm-hmm. is high. I think we see more sure. freezing. I think we mm-hmm. see uh, more stiffness. I think we see more memory loss when they are mm-hmm. anxious. And Absolutely. And when we can use breathing exercises and things like that, it seems to calm them down. We don't always have that mm-hmm. luxury with people with Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. phenomenon, isn't it? It's really tough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then on top of that, you know, absolutely with the care partners and and that degree of additional stress and burden and the closure of day programs, the closure of gyms and, you know, all those additional outlets, not only for respite, 
but also for the social interaction for both care partners and for people living with dementia. So it, it really is, you know, a, a perfect storm of bad situation for people's brains right now. It sure is. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988, to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. All right, we're back, and I have Dr. Samantha Holden on the show with me today, and she's a medical director at the Memories Disorders Clinic at University of Colorado Hospital. And, Samantha, I'm so happy to have you back on the show today. It helps my listeners when they can have situations explained when they're feeling some anxiety Mm -hmm. and they're wondering, am I having problems myself? And we were just talking about the COVID situation and how it has Mm -hmm. really adversely affected everyone. (laughs) I don't think anyone has been able to escape this, but I'm getting questions more and more often, especially from family members of someone with Mm -hmm. a diagnosis that are worried about their own cognitive awareness and Mm. mental health, depression, things of those natures. And I have had questions about mild cognitive impairment. And is that Mm. a precursor to Alzheimer's or what does it mean? So could you just take a moment and explain when you have somebody coming in that has relatively simple symptoms, but they're big to them, Mm -hmm. how do you diagnose a mild cognitive impairment versus early stage Alzheimer's, for example? Yeah. Very good question. Um, and this is probably, you know, the most common um, question we get in our clinics as well is, you know, well, what is dementia? What's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? How do you know oh, if this is just normal for my age? Um, right. so, so the way we conceptualize it is that cognition and cognitive changes, thinking and memory changes over the lifespan there is certainly a spectrum, um, and all of us start at different places, and all of us end up in different places. Right. But there is a certain degree of normal aging, and I always put normal in air quotes because neurologists know there's no such thing as normal. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know that there is a broad spectrum of, of human experience, 
but what is the cutoff for what is a disease? And that's usually not a black and white issue. It's usually a bit more um, nebulous than that. So for normal aging, you know, walking into the kitchen, what did I come in here for? That is normal. Right. <laughs> Trying to see the name, you know, the name of that guy. You know that's in that show. You know that guy with the hair. Yeah, but that's normal. Okay. Proper names of people is actually uh, takes extra cognitive effort to remember because they're totally made up, right? The fact that my name is Samantha, my parents liked that name. Right. There's nothing about me that says Samantha. You need to connect that back to other features of or knowledge of me. Right. So proper names, we do not worry about. If you are forgetting the names of objects and they never come back to you, or you don't know what that object is anymore, now that is concerning. Uh-huh. But normal aging, slowed processing speeds, a little bit of short-term memory trouble, word, occasional word-finding difficulty, but it comes back to you later. Not necessarily anything to worry about. But it doesn't hurt to get checked out. Because in that category of what we consider subjective cognitive concerns, where you feel something's wrong, but your testing's completely normal, we still take that pretty seriously because our tests aren't perfect. And you live inside your brain all day, every day. So if you notice a change, you may be more sensitive to it than we are as outward observers. So I generally follow people, you know, once a year. Even if the tests are normal when we first meet, I say, come on back in a year. Let's do this again. Call me sooner if anything else changes. Now, what pushes somebody over into mild cognitive impairment from normal aging is that there are objective changes on their thinking and memory tests. But it is not severe enough to impact their day-to-day life, managing their finances, managing their medications, driving, cooking, shopping. Everything that they need to do day-to-day is still possible completely independently, though it may take some extra effort or time or planning. So keeping lists, you know, uh, making sure you keep the keys in the same place, you know, those kind of compensation techniques are needed, but you can still do it. Okay. So that is what mild cognitive impairment is. It's a little bit more than we would expect for your age, but it is not dementia. Okay. Now, there's many causes of mild cognitive impairment, poor sleep, pain, depression, thyroid disease, vitamin deficiencies. So we always look for those treatable things. And if we find it and fix it, people go back to normal. Okay. But for some people, mild cognitive impairment could be the earliest signs of a dementia developing. The most common being Alzheimer's, but Lewy body, frontotemporal, all the other kinds. So we definitely keep an eye on these people over time, too. Well, I'm glad you explained that because in the classes, I often have someone say, yes, my husband was diagnosed with MCI. And uh, as I'm talking (laughs) about the brain and, you know, how it works and if if they see any impairment, this might be what they see. They'll say, oh, well, yeah, they're doing they're doing that, or they're doing this and they're doing that. And then they'll start talking to me, and I'll say, when was the last time you went back to the doctor? Yeah. When was the last time you had a checkup? Oh, it was three years yeah. ago. We weren't worried about it. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. we get things, uh, we get situations like that where people will kind of hang sure. on to that MCI for a while, and they don't yeah. realize it's moving on. And they, they want to know, you know, what is the difference? I think you've really explained that well. 
we get a lot of questions. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Did you want to? No, yes, that was it. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, there's also a lot of different questions about the difference between Alzheimer's and Lewy body. And you uh, Mm. specialize also in Lewy body dementia, uh, and especially how it relates to Parkinson's disease. And um, yes. my my take on it has been that sometimes with the Lewy body people, we will see maybe behavior issues before we see uh, memory loss. Mm-hmm. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I certainly do train our young neurologists that if they see an older person with new onset mood or behavioral symptoms, new depression, and they never had depression when they were younger, new hallucinations or delusions, and they've never had a psychiatric history, and it's starting in their 50s, 60s, 70s, that that is Lewy body until proven otherwise. You do not develop new onset psychiatric conditions, schizophrenia, bipolar, depression later in life out of nowhere. Um, So I think making sure, number one, that people are aware that it's a thing, period, what the common symptoms are, and then how to get the right help, absolutely. Oh, I'm glad you you said that. And and the other piece is the Alzheimer's piece, where these are two completely different dementias. and mm-hmm. I hear this is a question again, but I yeah. think I see from a non-medical standpoint, people with Alzheimer's have a tendency to have the short-term memory loss first. Mm-hmm. Would that be mm-hmm. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah, and I think you know again, there's there's very few black and white rules, right? Right? Yeah. We try, we try to uh, categorize things as best we can, and we certainly have certain um, categories that we try to fit people into. But with Alzheimer's, um, in the, the typical amnestic form, you know, there's also the visual form, as we mentioned, with PCA, a right. behavioral form, um, and um, uh, a language form with, with more word-finding difficulty. But with the typical, what we call amnestic, okay. um, you know, amnesia, forgetfulness, memory changes, um, that that is the most typical presentation of Alzheimer's because the Alzheimer's changes start in those short-term memory centers of the brain, in the temporal lobe, the hippocampi, where short-term memories are formed and where those brain cells are degenerating, where they're being lost over time, is what dictates the outward symptoms. As opposed to with Lewy body, well, there can be some forgetfulness. You know, everybody that walks into our clinic, it's called the memory disorders clinic. Right. <laughs> How can I help? My memory is bad. Yeah. So everybody says memory. Um, and then my next question is, what do you mean by that? Give me some examples. Because I find a lot of people use memory, my memory is bad, or their memory is bad, you know, from their family member. Right. To encompass a lot of different types of symptoms. So there are five different cognitive domains of which memory is only one. There's also executive function, which Uh is planning, multitasking, making decisions, following directions, attention, you know, being able to focus and and manipulate information at that time point. There's language, you know, producing language, understanding language, reading, writing, finding your words. 
Um, and then visuospatial function, so how things fit together spatially, um, you know, judging distances and, and other uh, visual information. Right. So for Lewy-Bot, while there can be some memory changes and forgetfulness or word-finding difficulty, generally when I hear the description of either what the person or the person that knows them well is noticing, it fits more into those executive changes. Um, you know, they can't make a decision. They can't follow steps of a recipe or visual spatial. They're getting lost. You know, they're getting turned around uh, in their neighborhood. They can't find the car in the parking lot. You know, they go to the closet to find their coat. It's right in front of them. They can't see it. Right. Um, so, so it's really important for us to figure out what exact type of changes is somebody noticing so that we know what part of the brain could be involved. That's a lot to uh, learn and take in, isn't it? <laughs> you have, right? And on top of all that, you have taken the time to try to figure out how is this related to Parkinson's disease, and you know what is it yeah. about Lewy body and Parkinson's that sort of make those diseases a cousin. You know, it's um, mm-hmm. and, and being uh, the basal ganglia, you know, with its production of dopamine mm-hmm. uh, affecting our, our yeah. friends with Parkinson's disease and not having that production output as they need it yeah. to be. Um, can you explain how those two are related? Because they are, right? Yes. Um, and, and I would say, you know, after the question of well, what is dementia? Is dementia and Alzheimer's the same? The, the second question that I spend the most time on in my clinic is, well, what's the difference between Parkinson's and Lewy body? Right. Um, and this is a source of confusion even among other neurologists, <laughs> so not us, you know, people in the community. Um, and really the simplest way to think about it is, again, Parkinson's and dementia with Lewy bodies, or DLB as we shorten it, are on a spectrum. They are probably not completely separate conditions where if somebody comes in with shaking, stiffness, slowness, but their thinking and memory is completely normal, they're not having any hallucinations, their behavior and mood, like there's, it's really just a motor presentation, how they're moving. Okay. That is clearly Parkinson's disease. Okay. Now, the thing is, about 80% of people who have Parkinson's disease in their lifetime will experience thinking and memory changes and can develop what's called Parkinson's disease dementia. Okay. As opposed to dementia with Lewy bodies, where people have more of the thinking and memory changes first. And they may not even have a tremor. They might not notice that they're stiff or slow or having trouble with their balance. But it's mostly the cognitive changes. So people with dementia with Lewy bodies are usually ending up in my memory disorders clinic. And the people with Parkinson's disease are going to the movement disorders clinic because that's the symptom that's bothering them or bothering their loved ones or their family members. But if we were to look at the brain of somebody with Parkinson's disease dementia and somebody with dementia with Lewy bodies under a microscope, we would not be able to really tell a difference. Wow. The symptoms overlap very significantly. The underlying pathology overlaps significantly. So the only difference is what comes first, movement changes or cognitive changes. And the somewhat arbitrary distinction is one year. If you had slowness, stiffness, and shakiness 
for at least a year, and then you got thinking and memory changes, that's Parkinson's disease dementia. Ah. If they came at the same time, the movement and cognitive changes, if they came at the same time or cognitive changes came first, that is called dementia with Lewy bodies. Wow. So that is, you know, really semantic issue. You know, it, it does kind of confuse not only, as I mentioned, people living with these things, but also the medical community. Um, and that's why sometimes we group both together under the umbrella of Lewy body dementia or LBD. So LBD is a more inclusive term that encompasses both people with Parkinson's disease dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies, not really paying attention to which came first. Um, and a lot of research studies are moving towards more inclusivity in that way so that we have a better um, population of people for clinical trials, for new treatments, you know, and, and making sure that we're using all of the resources we have available because there is such considerable overlap between the two. So then tell me this, and you may not, you may not have a really solid answer <laughs> for it, but Aricept, yeah. Aricept, uh, mm. Is a drug that usually is utilized in the very early stages of Alzheimer's, but we find it a lot in, especially in care communities, memory units, where they are giving Aricept to people with Lewy body and find that it actually has some efficacy. I I, yeah. I get a little yeah. confused about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep, so um, or denepazil, which is a, a generic name for it, is a drug that keeps a neurotransmitter around in the brain for longer. It's called acetylcholine. And we think acetylcholine is really important for your brain cells to communicate with one another. So if you have more of that chemical floating around, then the brain cells can you know do their work better. So that drug is approved for mild to moderate Alzheimer's dementia. Mm-hmm. There is a closely related medication called rivastigmine or Exelon that is approved for Parkinson's disease dementia. There is currently no FDA-approved drug for dementia with Lewy bodies. Now, do we use drugs off-label? Yes, because usually FDA indications are less an issue of does the drug work or not, and more an issue of did a drug company think it was worth spending millions of dollars to do a clinical trial to get an indication for it. So it's a very expensive, lengthy process to get FDA approval. Right. So when we think about how these drugs work and what the underlying disease we're trying to treat, we, we somewhat extrapolate and say, well, you know, if it does this in the brain, we know that this person's brain probably has this change. Let's try this drug. So we are limited in what is available, but we are always open to try because a lot of these medications have relatively safe um, adverse effect profiles. So the most common side effects from these types of medicines, upset stomach, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, it can slow the heart rate and make people dizzy, but it's not like it's going to necessarily put people in the hospital or, you know, increase the risk of death. So even if the benefits are modest, sometimes it's worth a try. I never push these drugs on anybody. I give the options. I We go through the risks and the potential benefits. Um, but we do know that people with Lewy body 
have less acetylcholine in their brain than people with Alzheimer's. So if we increase their acetylcholine, they may respond even better. Um, And even though it's never been formally studied, we see it anecdotally. So we generally do try. Um, We don't make any promises. um, But we do see more of a robust effect to these medicines like denapazil, like rivastigmine, even if they're not FDA approved. Um, and they can also help, in addition to helping, you know, the thinking and memory, they can also help with the hallucinations and delusions sometimes. Um, so I like to kill as many birds with as few stones as possible. So if we're trying to treat more than one symptom, then I'll be as judicious and efficient as possible with our medication choices. Well, I just think that's fascinating because I have actually yeah. seen people that, uh, you know, like I said, they put them on Aricept in a late stage Lewy body situation mm-hmm. and they seem to function better. <laughs> I was always really yeah. curious about that. And recently... I've had some very dramatic responses. Yeah, people like wake up, like they, I meet them the first time, they can barely interact with me. I'm like, well, let's try. And they come back and, and they're like a new person. Yeah, I, it's happened a few times for me that was really dramatic responses. I would say more frequently, it's, it, you know, maybe a little bit better, but maybe not. Um, it, it, even if there's one in a hundred of those really dramatic responses, you know, is it worth a try? Yeah. Right. And one other thing I want you to clarify for me um, is the hallucinations versus delusions. Now, I mistakenly thought, I think now, <laughs> that uh, people with Alzheimer's would have delusions, a thought that was untrue, but to them it's true. You know, you stole my purse, something of that nature. Where I saw hallucinations more in people with Lewy body diagnosis and behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that people with Alzheimer's really have delusions and not hallucinations. But I heard you say recently (laughs) that that may not be accurate. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, no black and white. (laughs) Right. I would say that you're correct. Yeah, that's a more frequent manifestation. So, so psychosis, which yeah. is a scary word, um, <laughs> but all it means medically is that there's the presence of hallucinations or delusions, somewhat a separation from reality, as most people would agree, you know, reality to be. Um, and hallucinations and delusions can take many forms. Um, they, the hallucinations can be visual, seeing, you know, people, animals, figures. Uh, auditory hearing conversations or music, uh, tactile, people can feel, you know, bugs crawling on them or, or water dripping down their legs. Um, uh, people can smell things or taste things. So those are hallucinations. The, the perception of something in the absence of a stimulus. So okay. it's not there, but your brain perceives it is a hallucination. Okay. A delusion, as you mentioned, is a false fixed belief that someone cannot be convinced of, even with ample evidence to the contrary, is a delusion. And they can coexist. They can wax and wane. You can have, you know, more hallucinations and then more delusions or back and forth or just one or the other. Um, But the overarching category of psychosis and dementia-related psychosis, which is different from the psychosis we see with primary psychiatric conditions, things like schizophrenia, where people think, you know... uh, People are broadcasting thoughts to them or, you know, that they're a savior or things like that. So it's usually the quality is different. Okay. But both types can occur in both forms of dementia. But a core feature of dementia with Lewy bodies 
is visual hallucination. Usually people, well-formed people and animals. And sometimes people know that they're not real and sometimes they're not aware. But they're not always scary or distressing. Sometimes they're pleasant um, and people enjoy, you know, having these visitors or animals <laughs> or little children. Right. Um, but the delusions are a supportive feature and they are usually um, persecutory. You know, somebody's out to get me um, or paranoid. You know, somebody's stealing from me. Somebody's trying to break into the house. Um, but but both forms can occur in both. But I would say in later stages of Alzheimer's, the delusions are usually more frequent than hallucinations. I think you're right, but there is a bit of overlap. Well, I have a theory, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw this yeah. out to you. So when I'm in a home uh, providing an in-home mm-hmm. assessment, and I'm with somebody someone with Parkinson's, and they tell me about their psychosis, they tell me what they're seeing. Generally, if I ask mm-hmm. them enough questions about their history, I can figure out where they're coming from, which I think mm. is kind of a fun thing. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. if they if they tell me that they're seeing children in their yard, chances are they interacted mm-hmm. with children to a great deal, mm-hmm. a, a great deal throughout their life. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. you know, things like that. I, I had a lawyer recently that kept seeing someone walk in. And as the more we talked about it, she would say, you know, I think he's walking into the courtroom. He's my he's my opponent. Um, you know, he's the prosecutor uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And when I can help them to try to figure out why they're seeing them, that I can give them the the um, wherewithal and the the power within them to say you need to leave yeah. the room or play nicely and put your toys away yeah. or things like that. And people seem to yeah. uh, feel like that yeah. that uh, that pragmatic approach is helpful. I think that's interesting. Yeah. And on the Alzheimer's yeah. side, I think when we have the delusions, a lot of times they stem mm-hmm. from families not having open conversations with people yeah. early enough. Mm-hmm. So the families yeah. that uh, can talk with someone and be very open about what they're seeing and not judgmental and creating mm-hmm. a very caring yep. and compassionate surrounding mm-hmm. and, and area for them. They have less of the delusions than people who people talk mm-hmm. around uh, and yep. so on and so forth. I just find the, those to be fascinating yeah. <laughs> things. Yeah, no, it oh, is. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, there's usually some kernel of truth, right, Well, where it's coming from. And then the brain just kind of amplifies it um, and adds on to it. But absolutely, I think if you if you drill down far enough, it's coming from somewhere. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to ask you about, you know, the whole COVID situation where they have taken mm-hmm. a general clinical trial. And I know that you're not on the research side, but you're well aware of what's going on. Okay, I, I, I am blown away at the fact that they've been able to actually jump in and kickstart and try to find a vaccine so quickly, you know, to where they're trying to get it out in the next 18 days kind of thing before the uh, election is actually upon us, where generally clinical trials trying to find new drugs that would work for someone, say, per se, with Alzheimer's take years up to, you know, three mm-hmm. different three different decades of, you know, the making yeah. sure every, everything is safe and, and uh, safety mm-hmm. measures are put into place and then having a certain amount of subjects to try it on and increasing that number and then making sure the drug has efficacy long term. Mm-hmm. And yep. I, I say to myself, my 
gosh, if they can get a COVID virus vaccine mm-hmm. that quickly, you know, what's the horizon for some of the new drugs that are coming through the pipeline? There's some hopeful things coming yeah. through the pipeline that, that were announced at yeah. the uh, international convention. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, well, I am, I am also a, clin- a clinician scientist, so I oh, do I'm sorry. Um, run some of our study <laughs> clinical trials. Yeah, <laughs> um, I do have a master's degree in clinical science, yeah. um, and I do have some observational studies trying to better diagnose uh, a Parkinson's dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies. Um, so I do have a foot in both worlds, oh, for sure. Oh, my apologies. Um, but, I did not know that. <laughs> Kudos to you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the clinic has been taking more of my energy uh, right now, but um, but yes, I am also a researcher and part of running our um, Lewy Body Dementia Association Research Center of Excellence. Um, is, is that's part of my uh, role in that network as well with the 25 other centers across the country. Fantastic. Um, but yeah, I th- yeah, I think the pandemic has uh, really revolutionized clinical research uh, and clinical trials because we've had to get very creative not only for COVID-related studies. I mean, the rate of scientific papers coming out and studies being published has been astronomical since the start of the pandemic. Um, So I think because we're all, I mean, worldwide, everybody has the same goal. We're all focused on one problem. There's money that, you know, the floodgates have opened with funding and time and resources, and we're all focused on the same thing. We can accomplish a lot all <laughs> right. when we're all focused on. I mean, otherwise, when you're thinking about medical research, you know, you got the people doing cancer, you've got the people doing heart disease, you got the people doing diabetes, and everybody's in their silo with their own priorities, and there's more competition, so I don't want to share my results because I want the credit, you know, I want to get the publication and the research money for it. So I think that's probably why we've seen this warp speed is that everybody has the same goal. And everybody's working together, and there has been, you know, more money and re- and resources funneled into it. Now, Alzheimer's is such a common issue um, and affects so many people worldwide, too. So I think there's been a slower pivot um, and increasing funding through the National Institute of Health and more collaboration. Um, but it, it's certainly not to the, the level of urgency or collaboration that we've seen worldwide for COVID. But I think it does, it's a good lesson for us, you know, for what we can accomplish when we set these, you know, collaborative goals together and get creative about how to do things. Like the way we do science, you know, are we doing it this way because it's the best way to do it? Or are we doing it this way because that's how we've always done it? Right, right. Um, so if we come up with novel methods, you know, we say, really, do we have to do, like, of course, keeping everybody's safety, um, you know, par- is paramount, absolutely. But there's a lot of red tape and kind of bureaucracy and regulatory steps that aren't really serving our participants and not really serving the science. So what can we get rid of to accelerate uh, discovery in, in a similar way? Well, you are so right, but I sure wish that they would put it on the fast track for Alzheimer's. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Samantha, you are always a wealth of knowledge. I'm so happy to have you on the show again, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of listeners' emails and say, she was terrific. That was great. You've explained a lot, and I appreciate so much working with you and you supporting my work. Thank you so much. 
Oh, you too. Thank you. Honestly, we're so, so lucky to have a partnership with you, and we appreciate so much everything you do for our patients. Oh, thank you. Well, I look forward to having you on the show again, and hopefully we'll have many more countries join on at that point. (laughs) But uh, I appreciate Yeah, I appreciate your time, and I hope you tune in again next week for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.